Que pasa, Mufasa? Salam alaikum, priviet, konnichiwa. What's up, everybody? Welcome to the Micropreneur Podcast. Today, we've got Jason Ortiz, Executive Director of Students for Sensible Drug Policy, SSDP. As a former high school teacher and a current part of the collegiate academic ecosystem, I couldn't be a bigger fan of Students for Sensible Drug Policy. There is certainly a shift in the tides around drug policy and normalization of psychoactive substance use in the United States and beyond these days. Groups like SSDP and Last Prisoner Project are helping to frame the narrative surrounding our transition away from the drug war, the failed and racist drug war, and into a more sensible global paradigm. And it cannot happen fast enough. For real, who the fuck is still out here justifying incarceration for drug use and possession? mainly among BIPOC communities, noteworthy, while cannabis dispensaries are generating billions of dollars of revenue collectively in 2022, $22 billion this year by recent estimates. And we're going to dive into some heavy topics today, including the colonial occupation of Puerto Rico, why civil disobedience may be more effective than indirect action, and where we can and should go from here as a society in regards to the way that we treat psychoactive molecules and the people who use them. So without further ado, let's hear what Jason Ortiz of Students for Sensible Drug Policy, SSDP, SSDP, has to say about it all. Okay, Pasa Mufasa, Jason Ortiz, from Students for Sensible Drug Policy, SSDP. I'm a huge fan of this organization doing critical work. Welcome to the Micopreneur Podcast. How are things going for you on the East Coast today, Jason? Yeah, thank you so much for having me, brother. I'm happy to be here. Things are going pretty good. We just wrapped up a pretty serious direct action at the White House over this week. And so getting ready to gear up for whatever you know next actions we have to do um, here in New London, Connecticut. Uh, and just so quick introductions on myself and SSDP. SSDP is a 501c3 nonprofit organization. We're also a C4, but that's led by students. Two thirds of our board are student members. And we seek to train and empower young people to change the drug policies in their communities. And that can be lots of different types of drug policies. So we work on all drugs, including other collateral consequences of the war on drugs like employment, housing, parental rights. And we just want to make sure that wherever people are trying to end the drug war, they can do so more effectively and call on SSDP students to come in and light a little extra fire when needed. And SSDP has been increasingly prolific and all over the place, as previously mentioned. So I I met a number of your team members in New York City last week at the Horizons Conference, and you were actually down in Puerto Rico at a harm reduction conference, and then you were at the White House in D.C. with the team a few days later. So that's covering a lot of ground and putting yourself right at the center of the action. So maybe let's start by unpacking some of the activities that happened at the White House and in Washington, D.C. this past week, which I saw it was quite an eventful protest, a a cannabis clemency protest that SSDP, among other organizations, executed. So let's start there. What was that experience like for you? What were some of the highlights? How, how, How did it feel overall to be representing the underrepresented and marginalized perspectives of cannabis prisoners in the United States? Uh, it felt fantastic, first of all, I'll just say that, to really refocus the cannabis movement back on criminal justice reform and getting our homies out of jail, right? The idea that we have folks making billions of dollars in cannabis companies while other folks sit in prison doing for far less that's, you know, when it comes to sales than what uh, the cannabis companies are doing is the biggest hypocrisy in our movement right now. And I, you know, I struggle with it also with some of our psychedelic folks. There's not as many psychedelic folks that are in prison. However, there are some, uh, and we should be focusing on getting those folks out before any company can make any profit. And so we partnered with The Last Prisoner Project and DC and Maryland Marijuana Justice to hold President Biden to his promise to release all federal cannabis prisoners. And so in 2020, I believe it was, or 2019, during one of the presidential debates, he actually did say, we're going to let everybody out, records expunged. And he said he thinks we should decriminalize marijuana, period, right? And so we actually took that phrase from that uh, debate that he had and played it on a loudspeaker, pointing at the White House for hours on end on loop with a number of supporters. We had folks like M1 from Dead Prez and Red Man join us. We had the Freedom Grow team, of which is comprised mostly of folks that either were previously incarcerated for cannabis or have members previous uh, family members incarcerated for cannabis crimes. And so we really did see an intergenerational movement here of young students, 
older folks that have been on the movement for a while and everything in between to show up right at the front gates of the White House. And we brought a 50 foot joint uh, to, to make it very clear what we were talking about. Um, and we did plan on doing civil disobedience. That was the way we were going to escalate and make sure that the urgency of the issue was abundantly clear and that President Biden's pardon action, which is like pardon because he didn't really actually let anybody else out of prison, was insufficient. And I think that's one of the biggest misconceptions, I think, of the moment is that President Biden's recent actions actually let somebody out of prison when the number is zero by their own account. And so we wanted to make sure that we didn't let him get away with that and actually you know, pressure him to make sure what we wanted was clear, make sure the public understood that what we're really talking about as far as folks that are currently in federal prison is for sales sales of cannabis, economic activity. And that is the same thing that is being commercialized across the country, right? Like we're not just decriminalizing, we're letting folks sell thousands of pounds of cannabis in dispensaries. And so the folks that are currently in prison for that should be let out. Um, and so we, we made some noise. We actually started our rally in front of the White House, had some beautiful pictures, uh, had a whole group of French students join the rally for a little while, which is pretty funny because <laughs> that's always tourists around. Uh, and then from there, actually marched over to 17th Street, which is on the west side of the White House and it's one of the major throughways and we blocked two of the entrances to the Eisenhower staff building. Now we did you know, think that they would arrest us for doing that. Uh, but what actually happened was they blocked off the entire section of the road around us and said, we're not going to arrest anybody. So y'all can be here as long as you want, but we're not going to you know, engage in any arrests. And so they basically had a strategy to wait us out and see how long we would stay there. But we did end up bringing a 50 foot joint to block off 17th Street and had a pizza party in the middle of the street right next to the White House, blasting dead Prez and Biden's own words at his staff building. <laughs> and so this was all happening as Biden was driving around the DNC and, and doing whatever he had to do. And we, it was kind of surreal, right? We had young folks skating in the middle of the street now because they could and people just dancing and eating pizza and hanging out for a few hours. And we had seized an occupied 17th Street, right, with relatively no interaction or altercations with the police. Uh, and then eventually we did find out that President Biden was coming back to the White House. And that's when we moved off of 17th Street to back to the front gate, where one of our members, Sarah Noon, <laughs> took, took the opportunity she saw with the door was wide open and skirted in there really quickly uh, and got past the guards at the White House and did end up getting arrested for unlawful entry, although there was no charges actually filed the next morning. Sarah Noon is out. She is safe. She's happy and healthy. And so that was definitely the point where things escalated a bit. There's some videos on our uh, SSDP Instagram if folks want to check out the details there. But, you know, that that was the bulk of what happened that day, right? We, we took the field right in front of the White House. We involved all the tourists in the movement, took the street shortly after that. And eventually one of our folks actually made it across the line into White House property. And so they heard us loud and clear. <laughs> the press was there to capture a lot of it. And hopefully the movement heard us loud and clear because that's another part of this. Is we want to inspire all the other organizations that work in drug policy to refocus on criminal justice reform for the folks that really need our help as we talk about all this business stuff. Right. Like I support a lot of the business work, but I don't want us to lose focus on who's really most impacted. And those are the folks that are incarcerated. I saw a quote that really resonated with me about all this that said, when cannabis dispensaries look and operate like an Apple store, it's time to let a lot of people out of prison. And I myself, as a native Californian, it's mind blowing how quickly the cannabis business model has penetrated the mainstream of culture there. And as a concrete example of that, I live in a, my family lives in a fairly affluent suburb. And I was raised in Chula Vista, very close to the border with San Diego and Tijuana. And this was a very middle-class sort of conservative neighborhood. And there's now two high-profile cannabis dispensaries operating right in the middle of this suburb. And if you had gone 10 years back, you know, police were still harassing people and, you know, I got put in the back of a squad car and thankfully never arrested. But one thing that always stuck with me from that experience was I was with a dude from Puerto Rico and a Mexican friend and a guy who's Portuguese who looks fairly dark skinned. And all three of them got put in handcuffs. And myself, as the only white person, was put in the back of a squad car, but I didn't get handcuffed. And that was a very early, very visceral experience that stuck with me where I started questioning. I was in the same car with these guys. They're all close friends of mine. And I didn't get handcuffed. And I think, you know, that that is unfortunately an experience that a lot of people across the United States and across the world 
are familiar with and are and and that's something that we have to overcome. We have to really look at that with the critical lens and go, why why are we treating certain demographics differently than other demographics? So that's one angle I wanted to dive into. But we could talk about that all day, and I think we probably will. One thing I want to dive into right now is about the core values of SSDP. What are your guiding principles? I used to be a high school teacher, actually, at public high school. And it was very strange in that we had this this dichotomy between the teachers and the students about what we were allowed to talk about. And we had to be very careful in what we said about drugs because I knew that students of mine were using pills. I knew that they were vaping and things like this. But like there's so much red tape around what you can say, you know, how impressionable or suggestionable you can be to these students that I found myself wanting to just disengage entirely and not talk about drugs at all with these students, even though I had a lot to say because it would have threatened my profession and my ability to teach there. So, you know, hopefully that's starting to change. And I'm, a, I'm an advocate for drug education and drug policy reform myself. And I've lived through a lot of it. So what are the guiding principles and the core values of SSDP? So we really try to take a harm reduction and peer education approach to basically everything we do. And that is that we are not going to tell folks they can or can't use drugs. We're going to inform them and give them information on how to do so as safely as possible. The reality is that people will use drugs, whether prohibition is the law of the land or not, and they have since the beginning of time. So it is a futile effort to try to prevent folks from using drugs, and drugs have a lot of benefits for individuals, for communities, for sharing with each other, and for serious medical ailments. And so we have always taken the approach that peer education, based in science, reason, and compassion, is the most effective way to reduce any sort of negative impacts of drug use on youth. Now, we wanna make sure things are firstly grounded in science. As we've all seen, and some of us are a little bit older and remember the D.A.R.E. videos that were very clearly not grounded in science. And so we encourage all of our students to challenge whatever sort of information is being put before them and ask your teacher or your principal or whoever's giving the program, can you provide the actual science that backs up what you say? Because we know that for a hundred years, if not more, there has been misinformation, very purposeful misinformation, a lot of it funded by the government. And so we want to make sure that the basis for any sort of program is its actual efficacy, its actual ability to help, not the emotional appeal of what it might do or might not do. Also, we want to make sure we're being reasonable. This is sort of the don't use a sledgehammer to kill a fly approach, right? That when somebody is using a substance, we don't want to lock them up for the rest of their life. That is not an effective way to help that person become a productive member of society. We want to offer them assistance, education, support, community. All of those things are going to be more effective than incarceration, right? And then lastly, compassion. When we're looking at laws and programs and policies, are they actually there to help the person that is being addressed or are they there to punish the person that is being addressed in order to make an example out of them, a punitive approach, right? That does not work, right? We Again, that has been the typical strategy over the last hundred years and clearly people are still using drugs, right? As they were having a renaissance, as they say, although people have been using drugs for centuries and millennia. Uh, but it's only becoming more popular, right, after having 100 years of prohibition. So I think for SSDP, really taking a harm reduction framework, and when we're analyzing policies, are they based in science, reason, and compassion? So let's dive into harm reduction for a little bit, because this is, for me, one of those newer terms. You know, I've only heard it probably within the last two years, just like integration. That was a word that myself growing up, being a psychonaut, being interested in drug use, et cetera, I had never heard these words before, but now that I've become more you know, public facing and connected with more of this broader movement, I'm starting to hear a lot about harm reduction. And I've met or dialogued with a number of SSDP representatives, and I know that's something you're very invested with. So for anybody who may be unfamiliar or for who may need a more clear and concise definition, what is a good working definition for harm reduction as far as it applies to drug experimentation and drug use? And so it's taking an approach that we're not going to condemn folks for using drugs, but we are going to have an honest conversation about the harms that could be associated with drug use or drug misuse, and that our programs and policies are going to seek to reduce that harm on society and individuals. And so a good example of this on a college campus, for example, is safe ride programs. Safe ride programs provide a way to reduce the harm associated with drunk driving without trying to prohibit the students from drinking. It, it will be used and has been very successful on many campuses the idea of a designated driver, for example, is another approach to harm reduction, where we're not going to tell folks, don't drink. And if you do drink, you're going to go to jail. We're going to say, 
For everyone who's drinking, please do it as safely and as informed as possible so that we can minimize the negative impacts to each other, right? It's saying that as a community, we're gonna take everybody's safety into account first and figure out what programs can actually do that. Providing rides reduces drunk driving, right? Also, and the other side of things, safe use facilities. If there are folks that are going to be using certain drugs, we wanna make sure that they're doing so and as safe of a place with as much monitoring and support as possible rather than alone in their house or alone on the street. And so we want to give places folks to consume there. So if there is any issue with the substance in their body, a medical professional can provide that support right away. Those type of safe use facilities are now opening up in New York and prevent overdoses in the thousands of people, right? It's only been open for maybe a year. I don't even know if it's been a year and already thousands of overdoses have been reversed. And so whenever we're looking at all the drugs and yes we do cover the most stigmatized drugs of methamphetamine heroin fentanyl all the above that we want to reduce the harms to the individual making sure that they are taking whatever they want to take and then they have the ability to test the drugs so they know what they're taking and to society with things like drunk driving reduction. And so there are countless different versions of harm reduction around the world and there are definitely lots of different examples of approaches in different states uh, and we're seeing a lot of it open up more but the, the core of it for us is does this program actually help the person that is using the drugs and reduce harm to society and i understand that you were just down in puerto rico the last week right in addition to dc and new york city and all these amazing places but you were a participant in a harm reduction conference there and more generally i know that you're very connected to puerto rico and to a lot of the social and environmental issues that people there are facing which have been considerable and certainly over the last few years with hurricanes and with the island being treated as a tax haven by a lot of wealthy folks which is something I've been following. I'm very interested in offshore banking and that whole world. And Puerto Rico, it's my understanding, has like a 4% tax rate for people of a certain bracket. So it's attracting these multimillionaires, you know, crypto millionaires, while at the same time, half the island doesn't have power and people are trying to get clean water and things like that. I think that's a very, very concise microcosm of sort of the social inequities that we're facing right now in the United States and in global society. So maybe let's dive into how the harm reduction conference was, your experience there, and then more generally, some of the issues that Puerto Rico is facing. And uh, just one more brief addendum, I actually know a few people in the mushroom space who have been more active in Puerto Rico and starting to maybe set up bases of operations there for whatever reason, the favorable climate or you know the biodiversity and this, that, and the other. But it's definitely an island that has come up in conversation repeatedly over the last couple of months for me. So yeah, let's dive into it. Sure. Yeah. And it's been on my mind since I was born. And so, you know, I'm, I'm from Connecticut. Both of my parents are from New York, but my entire family is Puerto Rican. My grandma was born and raised in Puerto Rico. My sister was raised in Puerto Rico. And I have lots of family on the west side of the island in Añasco, Puerto Rico. And my OS is the bigger area where we're all from. And so from, you know, I was a child. We've talked about Puerto Rico's status as a colony because it is a colony. And just so folks know, the Supreme Court decision actually says that Puerto Rico is a possession of, but not a part of, the United States. So the United States owns Puerto Rico, but Puerto Rico is not a part of the United States. And that is an important distinction because the U.S. treats it like property and the people on the island like property. And so they have created this bizarre colonial situation where the tax code is totally different than it is in the United States. And so obviously that's an increased investment so that folks can bring money to the island, but really it's so that folks in the US can still remain sort of in the US, but take advantage of foreign tax rates. And this has been going on for a very long time. Uh, you know, Since 1898, I would say, when the United States first took it over after the Spanish-American War. And so for 100 years, we've been dealing with being a colony or one of the last colonies still exi existing in the world. And, you know, having the harm reduction conference in Puerto Rico actually was really exciting. You know, like we don't get a lot of big conferences that come and really talk about the serious issues. And the harm reduction conference specifically gets very much to the root of the problems and is very aware of those that are most impacted by colonialism, by efforts to, you know, force poverty on certain communities. And so I was really excited to see it happen. The timing was a bit rough considering the hurricanes. And so, yes, there were folks without power as the conference was happening. But I am 
still glad that the conference happened and that it brought that attention to the island and got lots of folks got to enjoy the beautiful nature because I love the island so much and it is very much a healing place. And so for folks that are looking for healing, like I always tell folks, go to Puerto Rico, spend a weekend on the beach, and I think you'll have a different perspective on whatever problems it is that you're working on. Um, so I was really excited. And the Harm Reduction Conference is the least business-focused conference that I have ever gone to. And that was so refreshing <laughs> that we weren't talking about banking and things like that, that we were very much talking about things like parents who lose their children because of a drug arrest or for having a plant in their house and how we specifically have to talk about the foster care system and what that impact is on communities of color when you take their kids away. Uh, we often talk about what happens when you lose a parent, right? And what that does to a family, but losing a child is also incredibly devastating to a family. Um, and we were there as SSDP to learn from all the different issues that were happening. And specifically, uh, one of our interns, Nina Christie, was issuing a report on the Drug-Free Schools and Communities Act which is the law that governs how universities and K through 12 as well actually can or should approach drug policy, penalties, all of the above. Uh, and there's been some misunderstandings about that law that some administrations will use that law as an excuse not to change their policies or to say they cannot put harm reduction programs on their campus because they will lose federal funding. And our work showed that first, no one has ever lost federal funding for adopting a harm reduction program, and there are many that currently exist. But also we talked to the Cleary Group, the folks that oversee those penalties, and they said they would never penalize a university or school for changing their policies, for making them less restrictive, less punitive, or for adding a program on campus. They simply say you have to have a drug policy and you have to report your crime statistics appropriately. Everything else is left up to the university. And so this means that anyone that is on a school campus or any university can push as hard and as strong as they can for the programs they want, knowing that the university will not be losing funding. And it's likely that if the administration is using that excuse, uh, they're trying to weasel out of a decision. And so you can you know, go forward with all the strength of the movement that the Drug-Free Schools and Communities Act does not restrict funding for any type of school program. And we were there to share that with the harm reduction community, right? That this is what our research had shown and that we should work together, students and harm reduction organizations, to make universities a source of harm reduction programming, education, funding, all the above. That would have been so necessary when I enrolled as a freshman at the University of San Francisco in 2007, because I went straight to, you know, the legacy of San Francisco is immersed in psychedelia and substance experimentation, but there was no guiding principle or frame of reference that we had for safe use. And binge drinking as a consequence is a huge thing. It's an epidemic in the United States for a lot of people because we I didn't learn that, you know, from my family. I had to keep it separate. And the next thing, you know, I remember this very clear line of thinking between having my first cannabis experiences and saying, wow, I think I've been lied to. I think the the DARE program and all of this fear-mongering was actually misinformative and, and not accurate at all had some really deeply meaningful experiences with cannabis. Well, then the next logical thing is, well, this guy's also got cocaine. Like maybe I was lied to about that too, right? And like you just follow this chain of command where all of a sudden you realize, wow, these things are actually very different, right? Like an opiate is very different than cannabis, but there's there was no harm reduction, no unified drug theory or like unified practice and approach to it. And as a egregious example of that, I had friends at USF who actually won a grant from the school to create sort of an anti-drug, anti-drinking program and video. And they used the, the grant money partially to buy a bunch of weed and drugs and alcohol through a party and then filmed it and then used that as their promotion. So like in the part, it, it looks like a college scene where it's like, don't don't take the hit of weed if you're offered, but they're actually all smoking and using school money to buy that. And it was just sort of how things were back then, you know, is this really ridiculous theater of the absurd. So I, and unfortunately, I did have, you know, a number of friends from college who perished from opiate overdoses. And fortunately, it's something I never personally got attracted to. But that was really tough. I had a roommate die from a, an overdose of opiates. And it was after we were roommates. But I just remember thinking, damn, like, is there something I could have said, you know, and I think a lot of people go through that where you're like, I honestly didn't know he was battling this. And then it cost him his life, right? And like, how hard would it have been to have some harm reduction, 
uh, teachings and a framework that could have supported him through that time in his life. And actually for a handful of other people, I think that that story resonates with a lot of people probably who have lost someone because it's an epidemic among other things. So, and let's use that to dive into psychedelic exceptionalism because that's another term I've seen thrown around a lot. And I imagine that you've had these conversations before. I was at Meet Delic last year in Las Vegas and remember seeing a group of VCs on stage talking about sort of the future of the psychedelic industry. And one of them said a quote that resonated with me that uh, psychedelics are, are not illegal for these companies who are researching them and, re and dealing with them because the DEA doesn't see suits, right? So like, how is it that you have these publicly traded companies who are in a psychedelic industry when all these other substances are criminalized and treated as being separate? And when for most people, you'll get arrested if you're openly dealing with psychedelics and you're broadcasting it. But yet somehow we have a handful of people who have listed on the NASDAQ and are making millions of dollars researching and, and et cetera, et cetera. Not to say I have anything personally against what those companies are doing, but more of a sense of why are we treating psychedelics as this completely separate class of experience that are suddenly like sexy, safe. They make you smarter. They make you happier. But these things that are used in the inner city over here, these things are dangerous and we need to criminalize people. So let's just dive into that conversation. What does psychedelic exceptionalism mean to you? And what are some uh, ways that we can approach it and frame it to better understand the fact that all people use substances, it's not going away. And one is not necessarily better or more important than another substance. Yeah, I think it's that last part that we're really going to have to hammer home. But, you know, as someone that works in lots of different fields, I think that there are folks that often believe that the substance they use is the best one and everybody else needs to do the same thing that they do. Uh, in the psychedelic space, however, it has gotten a bit more dark in that there is demonization of those other drugs and those other communities that use those drugs as being less morally right or less noble in their efforts, or that because a particular product comes from the ground, and it even gets a bit complicated there too, because they generally don't consider the poppy plant or opium to be plant medicine, although it is a plant, it comes from a plant. But this idea that certain molecules or substances are okay to use if they came out of the ground and that they're not okay to use if they came out of a lab. And psychedelic exceptionalism is this idea that psychedelics specifically, and there's lots of different types of psychedelics, are less harmful than everything else and thus they should be treated totally differently and there are some drugs that should be demonized that they're bad you shouldn't use them at all um and so this often comes up with folks will say you know we want to make sure big pharma stays out of the movement and we want to make sure that everything comes in sort of respect to nature uh and there's you know a lot of truth to respecting nature it just doesn't have to be exclusively nature and so as ssdp we know that there are lots of different types of people out there and there are an infinite number of drugs the drug itself the molecule that changes your consciousness does not have a moral quality to it one way or the other that idea is how humans interact with each other and how humans interact with the world and how they use those substances is going to determine whether their actions are morally you know commendable or not right and that is to say that nobody in any of these fields cannabis psychedelics harm reduction more stigmatized drugs are inherently good or bad and both exist in all of the movements and so we want to make sure that we're taking account of the actions of people and judging them on the actions not on the specific molecules opiates serve lots of very powerful and necessary functions. There are people that go through serious surgery, are dealing with incredible pain, are dealing with other ailments that could be, you know, towards the end of their life, that get a lot of reprieve and able to work and be their person, society they wanna be because the opiates are managing their pain. And so we don't wanna say that opiates are bad because it's not that opiates are bad, it's that some people, right, maybe have struggled with those drugs and other folks may be operating less than ethically in the space, but the molecule itself is not the problem. And we wanna make sure that as we go about legalizing things, we are not demonizing one community to liberate another. We same thing with cannabis. Cannabis folks would also say, oh, cannabis is the one drug that's never killed anybody, so therefore it should be legal, everything else should remain illegal. No, it's that prohibition is the immoral 
communal approach to the problem. And once we can get beyond that and stop demonizing each other in order to prove our points, we'll all be better off. And so we always say that it is not necessary to demonize anybody else in the process of liberating yourself. And so I think that's really important when it comes to psychedelics, that the folks that use other drugs are not less enlightened or less worthy of supporting compassion because they choose to use a different molecule than you do. Absolutely. And one of the preeminent examples of successful decriminalization of all drugs, people point to Portugal, right? And people point to Holland. And I guess my question for you is the United States is such a vastly different place than those two countries. And I think sometimes a lot of people are oversimplifying when they look at a situation. They say, look at the healthcare industry in Norway or whatever. It's it's just vastly different than the United States. So from the realities that you've encountered and from your experiences going to these conferences and uh, dealing with the UN at the 65th Commission on Narcotics, which, which I want to dive into, do you think there is a realistic pathway towards integrating substances and drugs into mainstream United States culture without continuing to penalize, demonize, and sort of do business as usual as unfortunately has been the case over the last century or however long. And, you know, you you had to engage in civil disobedience because maybe you weren't going to be listened to if you just, you know, politely posted on Facebook or whatever. So obviously there's people taking necessary action to say, we need to make some noise. We need to ruffle some feathers. But from what you've seen so far, do you envision, you know, a couple of years down the road that this is going to be a normalized conversation like we're having right now and that people are actually going to listen or do you feel like you're up against this behemoth, monolithic corporate state that is absolutely going to do everything in their power to try to profit off of these molecules and to continue the status quo as it's unfortunately been over the last however many years? Yes to both of those wholeheartedly. <laughs> like, And this has been the struggle between the industry side and the grassroots side for all the different substances with the war on drugs. But both are going to happen. It will be normalized and it will become more a part of accepted society. The reality is on the cultural side of things, it's already been culturally accepted, right? The amount of cultural pieces that come out of people using drugs is in the thousands, right? Like all of our favorite movies, right? Johnny Depp was in Blow selling kilos and kilos of cocaine. The amount of movies that have had psychedelic experiences or other types of drug use is infinite. If you look at our music scene, right, like black, white, Latino, everybody has songs about weed and drugs, right? And so on the cultural side, it's been accepted. It's been a reaction to that cultural acceptance that prohibition became the movement of the elites to disrupt social movements because they knew everybody used drugs. And so they implemented a policy of selective enforcement, which is a term I learned back in 16 when I was arrested for cannabis and that we were going to use the enforcement of this law politically to disrupt political movements and specific communities. And so it's addressing that aspect of prohibition that is going to be most important when it comes to decriminalization. And in my perspective, decriminalization is more important than commercialization, although commercialization does allow for access and regulated supply. So those things are important. However, we are ending a criminal justice nightmare and trying to then implement a business economic solution to a criminal justice history simultaneously. So there is nothing about criminal justice reform that is going to be able to solve the problems inherent in capitalistic enterprise. And so as we legalize things, that's why things like social equity programs in the cannabis space have become so important, although I have lots of feelings about the details of those, right? We're going to start to see this transition away from simply looking at ending the bad, but how do we create institutions and structures that can then heal the damage done by the war on drugs? And one of the most important questions for anybody in the movement, what is sufficient justice for the communities that are most impacted by the war on drugs? We actually have to have a quantification, right? Like a, a reckoning with exactly how much damage was done in order to have anything close to an appropriate amount of investment to undo that damage. So personally, I think we need a Truth and Reconciliation Commission for the United States in the same way we saw after apartheid South Africa to really get the truth of what was done in order for us to move forward before any of the business should be talked about, right? What's happening though is we live in the United States, capitalism rules supreme, and so the money side of it is moving faster than the grassroots side can apply pressure. And so 
we will see both the normalization, the creation of new structures, the elimination of old ways of doing things as capitalism and money start to flood into the space. And I think folks that have gone to any conference, cannabis, psychedelic or otherwise, has seen it happening, right? We are both making progress on decriminalization and the VCs are coming to own everything. And so having to operate in both an offense and defensive role simultaneously has been tricky for a lot of organizers, grassroots organizers that are just not funded appropriately to be able to prevent this type of thing from moving forward, especially at the scale that the money is coming in on the other side. And so as community organizers, we have to deal with both of those simultaneously and educating the public all at the same time. So it's a big charge, but we are winning in a lot of ways. You look at Oregon, Oregon's bill passed, right? We're seeing psychedelic policies change all over the country. We're seeing folks that work at universities, you know, say, oh, I'm gonna go to a ketamine infusion uh, over the weekend to try to feel better. So I'm gonna be back at work on Monday and talking about it like it's, you know, the right thing to do for their mental health. And so on a cultural side, we've, in a lot of ways, won a lot of battles. It's the financial side that most grassroots organizers don't go into the space equipped to deal with, right? Like I was somebody who was arrested. I went through the criminal justice system. I could talk a lot about expungement, jail policy, student policy, right? All those kind of things. But when you have to then figure out how you could create a business or stop a billionaire from owning everything, that's an entirely different power dynamic. And so we've had to adjust our approach and adjust our way of looking at the world, how we look at money, right? Because money is important. It is a resource that we can use to do a lot of things. And we can't be afraid of money. We may be upset with how a lot of folks have hoarded it and how they use it, but we have to embrace that it is a resource that is necessary. And I look at it similarly that if you ever had to pick up the sword to defend your family, yeah, swords are dangerous. Swords can lead to lots of different things. But if you don't, you will be steamrolled by the people that do. Uh, and I want to make sure that we don't you know, seed the ground immediately because our ideological approach shoots ourselves in the foot and we just look at money as this thing that we should avoid. We really have to think of it as power and we need to use it in order to protect our people, but we have to be careful about folks that hoard it. Yeah, I had this conversation on stage at a panel I moderated at the Oakland Psychedelic Conference, which had a number of grassroots underground. Yeah, it was it was wonderful experience, but the question for them was, so many people I've met who are more radical underground activists by necessity are quite opposed to a lot of organizations with money and these bigger companies. And I myself see the potential for maybe more communication across party lines. And I have it on good authority and from conversations with some of these players in larger companies that like they're open to collaboration. Like they have people in the companies that recognize the blind spots. And I think it's just about continuing to pound the pavement and find the right relationship. So my question for them was, would you take money from one of these big organizations if it was offered? Like if MAPS offered you or David Bronner offered you, you know, X amount of money, would you take it? And, you know, their, their responses varied. And one of the main things they said was it would have to align with our values. It would have to be like a no strings attached situation. But, you know, as we move forward with all of this, I just hope that we can have more conversations and dialogue across party lines and not be so siloed off all the time, which seems to be how things are politically, right? As you have echo chambers everywhere. But I think that the reality is to arrive at any meaningful consensus, we need to be able to be diplomatic and communicate across party lines and have underground activists at the table and chatting with you know the reps for big companies. And obviously, you're not going to keep all the people happy all the time. But yeah, I think that money is incredibly important, especially if you're a grassroots or underground organization who's trying to organize and trying to be taken seriously. So that's my my two cents on that. Yeah, I, I think the way we handle that is to focus on policy. Uh, and whether or not the policies we're pushing are good for our communities or not, and those that want to support us on specific policies, we accept them into the space until they prove that they are undermining us, right? And there is not like all companies are bad, right? Like there's this idea that like all of them are, if they're big enough, they're bad, but they are different and they have different people internally and different ethos internally. So we do want to differentiate the true evil players from those that are trying to do the right thing, but are not successful at it, right? And if we take it too broadly, we're going to miss a lot of opportunities to align with folks that can really push policy for us. And so as SSDP, we do accept money from folks, right? That maybe other folks may not agree with, but in order 
to keep an organization strong that can actually influence policy, you have to figure out where the resources are going to come from. And unless it's a private donor, you have to go to some other spaces that are willing to invest in your work, right? And we definitely think our work is worthy of investment and that it will help people. And by focusing on specific policies, we can be very concrete in what folks are or not doing. I think one of the problems is we'll say, this group doesn't support equity, right? But because equity is such a big, broad term, we're not really clear what exactly they are or are not doing. If they say, we will back the home grow bill, it is very clear that they are supporting this particular piece of policy. This is what I try to do for all the different organizations that we work with, all the different folks, because SSDP is not a left or right organization. We have folks that are across the board. We have folks in the deep south. We have folks in Oregon and California that have wildly different perspectives on how to do things. And so by necessity, we have to set a table that can welcome all of those different people together to be able to have those conversations. And in my conversations with my conservative brothers and sisters have been some of the more meaningful and impactful conversations that even if I didn't agree with them, it helped me further understand why I felt the way that I did. And so I do think it is possible. We even saw with this President Biden approach, right? It was ourselves, the last president project, DCMJ, different generations, different perspectives were able to come together around the focus of releasing people from prison. If you support releasing people from prison, give us money to help us do this more. And if you don't, well, then we'll make sure folks know that you don't, <laughs> right? And there, there is a part to play in accountability for those companies that are outwardly antagonistic to the movement. For example, there are folks in the psychedelic space that say we should not decriminalize or that they shouldn't trust you know, people on the ground or that psychedelics are such a dangerous, powerful tool that people can't be trusted to take mushrooms in their own house. That kind of rhetoric does scare me to the point where we do wanna point out when people are doing that and invite them to take a better position, right? Like they may be misinformed, we'll give them the benefit of the doubt the first time. Uh, but after we know if that's what their purpose is, or for example, cannabis companies that are opposed to home grow, there is a part to play with making sure folks know that those companies are not the ones to either shop for or partner with. Super important distinction to make. And something that, you know, all of us are navigating this shared space together. And this is pretty uncharted territory, right? Like we're seeing a lot of historical tensions bubble to the surface and come to the forefront, and especially with the rise of social media, right? Which is something I've been studying since the inception of it. Like I have a degree in media studies. I was on the first wave of YouTube and Facebook and things like that. And I've really seen how it's exploded worldwide and led to things like the Jasmine Revolution in the Middle East, where Twitter kicked off a major revolution right across Tunisia and over in Turkey and in Egypt and this and that. And I, I've had friends and I have myself have been involved in protests and things of that nature, but I never saw social media turning into this antagonistic, fragmentative capacity that it that it's in right now, right? Where like it's actually being weaponized in a lot of ways. And so and that's something I'm trying to do with Michaelpreneur is like bring a little bit of levity, satire, and wit into the space because Man, just like what I tell people is, can you even imagine what this next political cycle is going to look like if the last two were any indication? And so, like, hold on to your seats, you know, brace yourself. And I think that satire has become this really awesome lens for viewing a lot of these really complicated situations that are emerging, right? And on the surface level, it's like, oh, yeah, drugs are becoming normalized. But like, to, to walk that statement back a bit, I had a conversation in New York City at Horizons with uh, the editor of a large publication in the space. And he mentioned, I said, hey, how'd you get into writing about psychedelics? He goes, well, I was studying at Berkeley and I was doing research on the Black Panthers. And I interviewed Bobby Seale, who's the co-founder of the Black Pan Panthers. And I've seen him speak at USF. And he mentioned, Bobby Seale said, you can't study the movement and black liberation and the Black Panthers without studying LSD and looking at the role that psychedelics and LSD played in this. So like, this guy came really from a social justice. Yeah, like I, I'd never heard that perspective in my life, but like th that LSD was so fundamental to the founding and the movement of the Black Panthers. And I know like Timothy Leary was shacked up with them for a while and, and Libya or something like that. So like there's a lot of history that I'm still needing to dive into. But yeah, to walk that statement back a little bit, the, the psychedelic movement is so intersectional and the drug movement is so intersectional and it brings up so much 
about social justice, about environmental justice, about reciprocity, this, that, and the other, like reform of the banking system and of the way we value society and each other. And I think it's only going to accelerate and get even wilder in the next few years. So I think satire is a good lens for unpacking a lot of that stuff. Well, I wanted to briefly, or we could expand on it. I wanted to dive into your participation at the 65th UN Commission on Narcotic Drugs. That is a really cool really big diplomatic assembly. And it's awesome to see SSDP representatives in the house with all of those bureaucrats and diplomats and this and that. So can you speak a little bit about the experience there and what it's like for you to go and to, you know, pound the pavement at these conferences with the old guard, if you will? Yeah, like the oldest guard, right? <laughs> like for real. And I got a shout out to Roisin Downs, who's our international director. She is the one that takes charge over all of our UN work. And we are a registered NGO under the UN and one of the few student ones. There's also Youth Rise, which is another really influential space in the, in the UN. And, and it's fascinating, like the process that folks have at the UN, you know, because there's 190 countries represented and all the different political climates kind of simultaneously speaking and condemning each other for different things, you know, it's a similar where we really have to force our name and our work into the conversation and working with folks from very small countries, right? It may be, you know, folks in, in our Africa network is very strong as well and has done a lot of work within the UN. And the tension, right, is that it's the U.S. pushing a lot of the terrible policies at the U.N. And so one of the least likely to support our work in those processes is the United States delegation. And they don't really want to admit that their policies have been a complete and utter failure, although the rest of the world is very vocal about it, <laughs> right? Like, it is undeniable that the United States is the center of propping up this failed policy and we exported the war on drugs to the rest of the world and we have a particular part to play in ending it, right? And so we even saw things like, for example, in Colombia, we, the United States, was funding the aerial crop eradication of coca plants where they would dump toxic chemicals. Uh, it was actually Roundup, so shout out to Monsanto for being as evil as possible. Uh, and we were spending tens of millions of dollars to wipe out natural rainforests in the hope that we'll get some cocaine plants, right? That is funded by the United States. So the United States could easily end a lot of terrible policies by just not funding them. And so when we have folks also like Donald Trump, right, who was unfortunately our president and has come out and said we should give the death penalty to drug users and drug sellers that he said it publicly and like very emphatically, you know, that gives space for folks like Duarte in the Philippines to say that his brutal policies are supported by folks in the United States, right? And so we often have the most support for not the United States delegation to get this done. But it is important that, you know, SSDP and youth organizing, youth movements are at every level of government. We are at the small school board level at your local high school talking about how they're going to use suspensions around drug policy to university policies, to state capitals, to bringing, you know, civil disobedience to the White House and all the way to the U.N. And so we've protested in front of the U.N. before. There's one of the U.N. headquarters is in New York as well. And we will continue to be pushing on the international level that our international friends and family are doing a fantastic job making sure that we are at the table, that the issues related to youth are not ignored, and that the folks in the states, in the United States, have a tremendous role, and we really need to step it up on the international scale, how exactly we're gonna support the work that is happening outside the United States. But there is a lot of space there for us to talk about how we're doing things and to learn from other countries that are doing work. We actually were fortunate in that when COVID happened, we already had been doing some international work. And so knowing how to work remotely, work on different time schedules and things like that have been part of our you know core being. Um, but now, you know, we, we gotta be everywhere all at once and kick ass at, at every single space. And so if you're interested in drug policy on the international level, definitely contact Roisin Downs, who is our international director and international executive director. Um, but yeah, you know, we'll be there. We'll be at the UN. We'll be at Congress. We'll be at your state capitol. Uh, wherever we're needed, we can talk specifically about improving your drug policies in your community. There's your clarion call. Everybody listening who feels passionate about drug policy reform and education and social justice reach out to SSDP, reach out to Roisin. 
And I myself, you certainly perked my attention up because I grew up with a very international upbringing. I hosted exchange students from all over, from the former Soviet Union, from Ghana, Venezuela, Germany, Malaysia. And I still regularly with my family will host delegations of uh, diplomats and various NGO workers and people who come over to the States for different programs. And it's through the San Diego Citizen Diplomacy Council. So that's an organization that essentially brings people over for programs funded by the U.S. State Department. So sometimes it's judges from Mongolia. Sometimes, you know, it's entrepreneurs from Cape Verde. And a lot of these countries you just mentioned, smaller countries, Madagascar, Lesotho, things like that. And they'll stay with the family for a couple of weeks. So whenever I pass through San Diego, I'll drop in for dinner. And, you know, we've got friends in Turkmenistan and we've got friends in, you know, Kyrgyzstan. Actually, one of the guys who pushed me to start this podcast is a professor who's originally from Bishkek, Kyrgyzstan. And so that kind of like global lens is something that's always been very important to me and at the forefront of the way I think about a lot of geopolitics and a lot of global issues is like from this more globalized lens. So it's really awesome to see all of these different threads fusing together now. And although there seem to be a lot of challenges that we're facing collectively right now, and I know everybody's feeling the pressure, right? There's a mental health crisis, there's an environmental crisis, a banking crisis, this, that, and the other. I also see this as a time of unprecedented opportunity where we we can have a, a perspective, we can have a platform as individuals, right? And as kind of like smaller players. And I think that is unique throughout history. I think if you go back through most civilizations, you had to be in this sort of elite or this, you know, oligarchic elite. It was very nepotistic. But now you're able to use social media to coordinate getting some people with shared values together and making a scene and getting it picked up by the press, right? And having a 50-foot joint at the White House. So I I think as much challenge as there are, that only means that there's an equal amount of opportunity. And uh, I think we've hit the sweet spot here. You know, there are so many different things I'd love to dive into with you, but I think we'll just have to do a part two and form an ongoing relationship. But before we let you go today, I would love to turn over the platform platform to you and just ask if there's anything you want to promote, things you're working on, kind of uh, ideas that you want people to have fresh in their minds right now as, you know, we're all moving forward together as a community, you know, just would love to have you have the floor and share any any thoughts that are top of mind for you. Sure, absolutely. So I'll just say ssdp.org is how you can get in touch with us. If you're looking to start a chapter at university, we'd be happy to help you. We have almost 100 of them already and more growing every single day. Please keep your focus on making sure that we are helping those who are using drugs have the best experience with drugs possible. And lastly, for this particular podcast, I want to say taking drugs for fun is okay. Like it's also a big part of this process where we don't want to make drug use seen as such a serious thing that it's only for healing or only bad or only this or that, that it is perfectly okay to use psychedelics your house for personal enlightenment, for communal benefit, for hanging out with your friends. And so I do encourage folks to do so safely as educated as possible. But one thing we cannot lose in the movement is the joy that psychedelics bring to ourselves and to our communities and that we can use that joy to keep us going over the long haul. Cause this is going to be a long, difficult fight and we're going to need to support each other and respect each other. And we really could do well to chill out on the personalities and the personal attacks on each other, figure out what it is that we really want to accomplish together and focus on the policies to get us there. I want folks to have a good time and to be fun and jovial. And, and, you know, this is good work and let's keep it in a place that brings folks to the movement, not figure out ways how to exclude folks. And so as long as we do that and we do so in a way that's based on science, reason, and compassion, I think we'll get to the right place. Jason Ortiz from Students for Sensible Drug Policy, SSDP.org. Thank you for joining us on the Michaelpreneur Podcast. It's been a pleasure. You're welcome back anytime and keep up the good fight. Yeah, thank you. The pleasure is all mine. SSDP.org. We'll see you in the streets soon enough. There's so much to cover in the mushroom universe and so many Michaelpreneurs leveraging the infinite potential of fungi to create a more ecologically balanced, inclusive, and equitable world for all of us mischievous little monkeys. I am completely stoked that you've chosen to spend some of your hard-earned time in our little corner of the Mycoverse. Hop on the gram, say what's up, at Mycopreneur Podcast. That's the handle. Don't get it twisted. We've got the full suite of social media up and running. Twitter, Mycopreneur. Got the YouTubes dialed in, Mycopreneur. Drop us a line. Tell your grandma and your kooky uncle. Tell your wife and your kids. If you're a Mycopreneur yourself, you want to hop on the pod? By all means, willkommen, bienvenidos, welcome. Don't be a stranger. 
Let us know your thoughts on this episode, and also let us know what you want to hear in future episodes. This is a team effort. Thanks for stopping by the Micopreneur Podcast. Have a lovely day. We'll see you back here next week.